Okay, this is for yellow sort 22. Number one, quick. The quick boy ran fast and won the race. Quick. Number two, quit. She quit working when it was time for lunch. Quit. Number three, white. The fresh snow is pure white in color. White. Number four, twice. Catch him the second time if he comes twice. Twice. Number five is quite. Most basketball players are quite tall. Quite. Number six is fine. I could do it better, but this is fine for now. Fine. Number seven, write. Write your name at the top of your paper. Write. Number eight, might. The game might be canceled due to the rain. Might. Number nine, high. My goal is to climb that high mountain. High. Number 10, night. I sleep at night and awaken in the morning. Night. Number 11, bright. The bright sun made, my, made me squint my eyes. Bright. Number 12, fight. We always apologize to each other after we fight and argue. Fight. Number 13, flight. The airline said that the flight was late. Flight. Number 14, sight. Can you sight land on the horizon? Sight. Number 15, sigh. He breathed out a heavy sigh of relief. Sigh. Number 16, right. You can make a right turn on a red light if the road is clear. Right. Number 17, why? I know why the sky is blue. Why? Number 18, cry. I cry when I fall and hurt myself. Cry. Number 19, sky. I see a star in the sky. Number 20, fly. A bird can fly high in the air. Fly. Number 21, try. I will try the dress on to see if it fits. Try. Number 22, shy. The shy boy was too timid to dance with me. Shy. Number 23, live. I want to live forever because life is fun. Live. And that's the end of the podcast. Remember, you can go back and re-listen to any part to understand the words better. Have a great day. Hey, fourth grade. I thought I would read you a story. The story I want to read to you is Magic Treehouse number 51, a Merlin mission, and it's called a High Time for Heroes. Okay, we're going to go ahead and start with the prologue. One summer day in Frog Creek, Pennsylvania, a mysterious treehouse appeared in the woods. It was filled with books. A boy named Jack and his sister Annie found the treehouse and soon discovered that it was magic. They could go to any time and any place in history just by pointing to a picture in one of the books. While they were gone, no time at all passed back in Frog Creek. Jack and Annie eventually found out that the treehouse belonged to Morgan Le Fay, a magical librarian from a legendary realm of Camelot. 
They have since traveled on many adventures in the Magic Tree House and completed many missions for both Morgan Le Fay and her friend Merlin the Magician. Now Merlin needs Jack and Annie's help again. He wants them to travel through time and learn four secrets of greatness from people who are called great by the world. Jack and Annie have completed two of the four missions. They took a trip to ancient Macadania, where they spent time with Alexander the Great and his war horse. And they visited Coney Island in 1908, where they saw Harry Houdini and his wife Bess perform magic show. Back in Frog Creek, they are waiting to see where Merlin will send them to find them to their next secret of greatness. And here we go. Chapter 1. I know her. Jack sat in a sunny spot on the front porch, studying a book of magic tricks. He was planning to put on a magic show for his parents and grandparents. He took a sip of lemonade, then started making a list in his notebook. The list said, Flying Paper Clips. Hey, Annie tapped on the screen door. Let's do something. I'm already doing something, said Jack. He took another sip of lemonade and added more tricks to his list. Magical clinging pen, great pepper trick. Annie gasped. Did you hear that? she asked. She opened the door and came out onto the porch. Hear what? said Jack. He added another trick. Steal the strength trick. That... That whooshing sound, said Annie. Whooshing sound? Jack read his list and decided he still needed two or three more tricks. Like the treehouse just whooshed into the woods, said Annie. Yeah, yeah, said Jack. He flipped through the pages of his book. Come on, go with me, Annie pleaded. Let's check the woods again, please. We've already checked five times since Tuesday, said Jack. Well, one more won't kill you, said Annie. I have this feeling. I'm serious. Jack sighed. Okay, you win, he said. One more time. He put his notebook and pencil into his backpack. Leaving his book of magic tricks on the porch, he stood up and followed Annie down the steps and across their yard. Aren't you dying to find another secret of greatness for Merlin? Annie asked as they were headed up the sidewalk. And what about the magic mist? Don't you want to have another great talent for an hour? Well, of course, said Jack, but I'm also tired of looking for for the treehouse and not finding it. For two weeks you've had these hunches. Jack and Annie crossed the street and headed into Frog Creek Woods. Winding through the shadows of trees, Jack took a deep breath, inhaling the scent of warm earth and summer leaves. Hidden birds sang from the tree branches. As Jack and Annie drew closer to the tallest oak, Jack's heart started to pound. This time, something was there, high in the branches of the tree. Whoosh, Annie said softly. Jack grinned as he looked up at the small wooden house nestled high in the branches. Okay, he said, I'm glad we checked. Annie ran to the rope ladder and started up. Jack followed. Inside the magic treehouse, the shadows of the branches danced on the wooden walls. A piece of paper, a gold ring, a tiny bottle, a small book, and a scroll were waiting on the floor. A new message from Merlin, said Annie. She picked up the scroll, unrolled it, and read it aloud. Here's what it said. Dear Jack and Annie, I hope you enjoyed your time with the Houdinis. 
I ask you now to find the third secret of greatness from a woman named Florence Nightingale. Florence Nightingale, said Annie. I know her. I gave a report on her. I just know her name. Who is she, said Jack. Well, she's amazing. She's one of my heroes, said Annie. Yeah, okay, but what did she do, asked Jack. Florence Nightingale lived in the 1800s in England, said Annie. The English army was fighting in this place called Crema on the Black Sea, and Florence Nightingale was a nurse there. The soldiers called her the lady in the lamp, or the lady with the lamp, because after the hospital was quiet and dark at night, she went alone from bed to bed with a lantern. She gave light and comfort and took care of wounds. She was so brave and amazing, she became famous everywhere. Later, she changed the world by nursing, the world of nursing by organizing. Okay, you don't have to give the whole report, Jack interrupted. I get the picture. She sounds cool. Let's go meet her. I feel like I know, already know her, said Annie with a laugh. Oh, wow. I can't wait. So let's see where we're going, said Jack. He picked up the small book from the floor. Its faded leather cover had an old-fashioned look. I bet it's about England, said Annie, or, or Crema. Neither, said Jack. He showed the cover to Annie. Egypt? said Annie. I've never heard, read that Florence Nightingale was a nurse in Egypt. We've been to Egypt before, said Jack. Remember the mummy in the pyramid? The ghost queen, said Annie. She was on her way to the next life. Jack shivered. <laughs> that was weird, he said. Don't worry, the ghost queen was thousands of years in the past, said Annie. Now we're going to 1850. Oh, right, said Jack dryly. I guess all the ancient ghosts will be gone by then. Whatever. Ready, said Annie. Hold on, said Jack. He picked up the gold ring and gave it to Annie. It's your turn to wear this, he said. Annie slipped the ring onto her finger. They both stared at it for a moment. The ring was magic. When Florence Nightingale shared a secret of greatness with them, it would glow like a burning ember. The ring of truth, said Annie. Yep, just remember to keep checking it when we're talking to Florence, said Jack. Don't worry, I will, said Annie. Here, you carry this. She picked up the tiny glass bottle and handed it to Jack. Jack held the bottle up to the dappled sunlight and looked at the silver vapor swirling inside. Miss gathered at first light on the first day of the new moon in the island of Avalon, he said. Yep, good one for the hour of great talent, said Annie. Jack smiled, remembering their their hour as horse trainers and their hours as sta- as hours as a stage musician. I wonder what will be great at this time, he said. Maybe great nurses, said Annie. We'll see, said Jack. He put the tiny bottle in his backpack. Then he picked up the piece of paper from the floor. On the paper, he'd written the two words of greatness they already learned, humility and hard work. Ready to find the third secret from Florence Nightingale, he asked. A thousand times, yes, said Annie. Jack pointed to the picture on the cover of the Traveler's Handbook to Egypt. I wish we could go there, he said. The wind started to blow. The treehouse started to spin. It spun faster and faster. Then everything was still. Absolutely still. Is everybody ready? Here we go at Chapter 2. Welcome to Thebes. Warm, dry air filled the treehouse. Jack wore a helmet-type style hat leather boots, a long sleeve shirt, 
and a pair of heavy linen pants with a leather belt. A large pouch was attached to the belt. I wish I was dressed like you, said Annie, making a face. She was wearing a long white dress with frilly lace. You look like a cool explorer. I look like I'm going to a tea party. Don't feel bad, said Jack. My clothes are really scratchy and heavy. Hee-haw. Is that a donkey, said Annie. She and Jack looked out the window of the treehouse. Leaves and branches completely blocked their view. I think we landed in a sycamore tree, said Jack, studying the leaves. Annie pushed some of the branches aside. All they could see below were more leaves. But straight ahead in the distance was a wide plain dotted was a wide plain dotted with sand-colored ruins. Beyond the plain, mountains loomed against the cloudless blue sky. The Egyptian sun was blindly, blindingly bright. Hee-haw! That's definitely a donkey, said Annie. Let's go look. She gathered up her long white dress and started down the rope ladder. Jack stuck the small handbook into his leather pouch. He saw that his notebook, his pencil, and the bottle of magic mist were also inside the pouch, along with some coins that showed images of pharaohs. Hey, we have some Egyptian money, he called down to Annie. Great, come on down, said Annie. She was already on the ground. Jack buckled his pouch, then clumsily climbed down the rope ladder in his heavy leather boots. As soon as he stepped out onto the grass, flies landed on his face. He shook his head and waved his hands, trying hard to brush them away. The sycamore tree was surrounded by bushes and other plants on the lush green riverbank. Across the river, several dozen sailboats were anchored near a temple. Hee-haw! The sound came from beyond the bushes. Jack and Annie stepped around them and peeked out. Yep, donkeys, two of them, said Jack, and there is a little kid with them. About 50 feet down the river, two small donkeys were standing under a cluster of palm trees. They were shaking their long, furry ears and swishing their tails to keep the flies away. A boy was napping in a rowboat on the riverbank. He wore a striped robe. Want to talk to him, said Annie? Sure, said Jack. They walked out of the bushes and headed toward the boy. Hello, Annie called. The small boy scrambled out of the rowboat. He looked to be only six or seven. I did not see you coming, he said. Welcome to Thieves. My name is Ali. Do you need donkeys and a guide? No, thanks, said Jack. My grandfather is the best guide in Thieves, Ali said with pride. He is returning now with two travelers from England. There he is, on the horse. In the distance, a white-bearded man wearing a turban was riding a pack horse. He was leading a man and a woman on donkeys toward the river. After my grandfather rows them across the Nile to their boat, he can guide you to the tombs on the cliff, said Ali, or the, the temple of Lexor. He pointed to the temple across the river. Well, thanks, maybe later, said Jack. We are here every other every day. Come back, said Ali, and he ran to meet his grandfather and the travelers from England. We just learned a lot, Jack said to Annie. It seems that we've landed in Thebes, Egypt, on the River Nile, across from the Temple of Luxor. Sounds like a fairy tale, said Annie. Jack pulled out the Egypt, Egypt handbook. He found Thebes and read aloud. Travelers enjoy visiting the area of Thebes, Thebes in Egypt. 4,000 years ago, the Egyptian city was the capital of the known world. 
At that time, it was the noisiest and liveliest place on the Nile, on the River Nile. Seriously, said Jack. He looked around at the quiet river bank, the donkeys, and the distant bare mountains. I guess times have changed for thieves, said Annie. Well, no kidding, said Jack. So I wonder what Florence Nightingale is doing here. Nursing, said Annie. She has to be. That's what she's famous for. Maybe those English travelers know something about her. Annie pointed to the couple riding with Ali's grandfather. Remember, Florence was from England, too. Jack and Annie watched the three riders arrive at the riverbank. Ali's grandfather climbed off his pack horse and helped the couple off their donkeys. As Ali and his grandfather gave the donkeys water, the Englishwoman noticed Jack and Annie. Hello, children, she called, waving. Jack and Annie waved back, and the couple headed toward them. How delightful to see new faces in thieves, the woman said. Yes, said the man, smiling. Who are you? Where are you from? The man and the woman were both stout and middle-aged, but they had young, exuberant air about them. I'm Annie, and he's my brother Jack, said Annie. We're from Frog Creek, Pennsylvania. Americans, wonderful, said the woman. We are from England. My name is Selina Bracebridge. I'm traveling with my husband, Charles. And I am that very Charles, said Charles. With whom are you two traveling? Um, our parents, said Annie, but they've left us on our own in Thieves. To visit the ruins, said Jack. They said it would be uh, an educational experience. What brave American children you are, Selina said. And what unusual parents. Indeed. And where are you brave American children staying, asked Charles. Um... Up the Nile that way, said Annie. She waved her hands vaguely toward the treehouse. In a little house, it's sort of like an inn. Oh, I see. Good, good, said Charles. Well, can we do anything to help you with your thieves' educational experience? Jack could tell the man was joking, but Annie answered right away. Actually, you can help us, she said. Have either of you heard of a woman named Florence Nightingale? At the place we're staying, someone said she was in Thebes. Selina's eyes widened in amazement. Charles, did you hear that? They're looking for Flo. Jack looked at Annie and then back at Charles and, and Selina. You know Flor Florence Nightingale, he said. Know her? She's our best friend, said Selina. She's traveling with us, for goodness sake. She pointed at the sailboats anchored along the river. For many weeks now, she's been sailing up and down the Nile with us in our boat, said Charles. That is amazing, Annie said to Jack. Totally, he said. How do you two know Flo, asked Selina. Well, we don't exactly know her, said Annie. We just know that she's a world-famous nurse. A what, said Selina. A world-famous nurse, said Annie, like a nurse in a hospital? Charles and Selina both laughed. Oh, no, said Selina, not Flo. She's helped sick relatives and villagers in their home, but she's not the least bit famous for that. And she certainly never worked in a hospital, said Charles. I'm afraid you found the wrong Florence Nightingale. Oh, said Jack, how many Florence Nightingales can there be, he wondered. But your Flo's a great person, right, Annie said. Well, we certainly think so, said Selina. Well, then we'd like to meet her, said Annie. Righto, said Selina. Flo is visiting the Temple of Luxor this morning. Why don't you come with us to our boat and wait for her to come back? 
Oh, thank you, said Annie. Excellent, said Charles. Mustafa will ferry us across in his river or in his rowboat. He turned to the bearded guide and his grandson. Mustafa, shall we be off? He called. Goodbye, Ali. The boy waved goodbye, and his grandfather pulled the rowboat partway into the water. Children first, said Charles. Mustafa held the rowboat steady as Jack and Annie climbed aboard and sat down. Then he helped Charles and Selina aboard the, and climbed in after them. Once everyone was settled, Mustafa pushed off shore with his oars and started rowing across the Nile. As the boat glided over the sun-sparkling water, the old Egyptian sang, softly sang a song. Jack couldn't understand the words, but the song was soothing, sung in rhythm with the movement of the oars. This is perfect, Annie whispered. Now all we have to do is spend time with Florence Nightingale and wait for the ring of truth to grow, glow. Yeah, but she's not a great nurse, whispered Jack, fanning away the flies. She's not famous for being anything. I know, that is a little confusing, Annie whispered back. Look, children, said Charles, isn't that a magnificent sight? He pointed to a huge crocodile sunning itself on a river rock. Whoa, said Jack. Yikes, said Annie at the same time. The crocodile had a scaly green hide with black spots. Its green eyes glimmered as the rowboat passed by. Don't be alarmed, said Charles. In our experience, now crocodiles are completely harmless. Harmless? Crocodiles, thought Jack. Well, I don't think so. Mustafa stopped singing as they reached the landing on the opposite riverbank. He climbed out of the rowboat and tied it up. Then he helped Annie and Jack onto the bank. Selina and Charles followed. Charles handed some money to the guide. Thank you, Mustafa, he said. Please wait on the shore as I believe Miss Nightingale plans to visit the Western Thieves later today when it's a bit cooler. This way, children. Jack and Annie followed Charles and Selina as they walked briskly along the landing, passing the line of sailboats moored in the water's edge. Well, whose boats are those? asked Annie. They are rented by travelers from all over Europe, said Charles, most of whom are hiding from the midday heat right now. Well, I don't blame them, thought Jack. The heat and the flies here were almost more than he could bear. He felt sorry for the workers on the boat decks, scrubbing the floors and mending the sails. Here we are, said Selina. She and Charles stopped at the largest boat anchored on the river. Home sweet home. This is Trenton here. Today I'll be reading The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Retold by Tolan Anderson. Illustrated by Mike Lacroix. Lacroix. Sorry if I'm betraying anybody's names. Okay. Let's go. Starting The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Sleepy Hollow was the quietest place in the world. Besides being haunted, nothing much happened there. Until the night of the Van Tassel party. Skinny old Ichabod Crane marched into the party with his head held high, resembling a scarecrow dressed in fancy clothes. He was at the party for one reason, Katrina Van Tassel. 
The stunning Katrina stood out at the party like a red rose on a snowy day. She chatted with Lombones, who was a massive, who was massive as a bull and as mean as a bear. He enjoyed riding around on his horse, Daredevil, and causing mischief. Lombones also liked Katrina. Ichabod mustered his resolve and went straight up to them. Excuse me, Katrina, Ichabod said. Would you care to dance? Bonbon's face turned as red as a boiled lobster. I'd love to dance, Katrina said as she grasped Ichabod's hand. Ichabod and Katrina twirled around the dance floor as if there were no tomorrow. Ichabod imagined he could dance his way right into Katrina's heart. Stranger things have happened. It's not like she didn't like him. She liked him just fine. But a beautiful girl must weigh her options. The longer they danced, the angrier Brom Bones became. When the band took a break, Ichabod and Katrina stopped for a drink at the punch bowl. At the punch bowl, there towered Brom Bones, sharing ghost stories with a group of friends. I'll, I'll tell you the scariest story ever. Boasted Brom Bones, he stared directly at Ichabod. Have you ever heard of the headless horseman? Nope, Ichabod muttered and looked. Brom Bones began to whisper, and the group leaned in closer. Every night, at midnight, he rides through the town on his horse, looking for his missing head. Brom said, I've seen him with my very own eyes. I was riding along light at night when this fellow came trotting up. I asked him if he wanted to waste. He didn't say a word. Because he didn't. <laughs> so I took off our new devil. Blom bellowed. And he came up there behind me. Once his foot, once his foot set foot on the bridge, he disappeared in a flash of fire. The audience stood in tense silence. If you ever see the headless horseman, Bumbum said, head to, the, head to the other side of the church. Otherwise, you're done for, and of course, as you're as fast as me, you have nothing to worry that was really brave, Katrina fawned. Her eyes shined like jewels in candlelight as she gazed up at the massive bonbons. Ichabod took one look at Katrina and grunted great imaginary story. He grabbed Katrina's hand and quickly pulled her to the dance floor.
They danced to a few more songs, but Bombone's story was sucking Ichabod's head. Just, just before midnight, Ichabod said farewell to Katrina and promised to visit her soon. Then he climbed on his sad old plow horse, which was almost as skinny as Ichabod himself, and set up and set off home. The wind whistled through the branches. An owl shrieked. The headless horseman filled Ichabod's mind. He attempted to sing to keep himself raised, but his voice got in his Then he heard another sound coming up behind him. A horse. The horse rider trotted up next to Ichabod, but it was too dark to see them. Good evening, Ichabod said. The rider said nothing. Up ahead, Ichabod could make out the church bridge. He started to ride a little faster. The rider matched his pace. This is a strange fog we're having. This is a strange fog we're having, Ichabod said, trying to make a conversation. Again, the rider said nothing. The moon slid, slid out from behind a cloud. Ichabod looked over at the rider and froze. The rider had no head. The rider had no head. screamed. He heard the rider's horse behind him. He turned to look from the safety of the bridge. A flash of flames rushed towards him and all went dark. The next morning, a schoolboy discovered Ichabod's grazing horse in a field nearby. In a field a horse scraping in a field nearby the church, grazing in a field by the church. On the ground next to the old bridge, he found Ichabod's 
hat, hat and a scorched pumpkin. Ichabod himself. Cut the spear. Not long after Ichabod vanished from Sleepy Hollow, Blom Bones married Katrina. When folks told the story about Ichabod Crane, Blom Bones would always smile. Some say Blom Bones drove Ichabod This is my podcast, Prairie Dog Towns. As you might guess from their name, prairie dogs live in the prairie. A prairie is a type of grassland, but they're do- but prairie dogs are not dogs. These cute little animals are rodents. Rodents are small animals with big front teeth for chewing. Black-tailed prairie dogs live in the prairie of prairies of the Great Plains. This is a flat, dry part of the western United States. The, pra- the Great Plains have plenty of sweet, juicy grass, which prairie dogs eat. The animal tunnel, the animals tunnel into the soil to build their underground homes. These homes keep them safe from the other animals and from bad weather. Long ago, the Great Plains were full of prairie dogs. But when people moved in, moved into the plains, they used the land for farming and raising animals. Today, there's less open land for prairie dog towns. So there are fewer prairie dogs living in the prairie. Prairie dogs live in a f- large family groups. A, a group includes mom, dad, brother, and sister. Another relative and other relatives, large community of prairie. Prairie dogs are called towns. In its town, a prairie dog's underground home is called a burrow. It has thirsty, it has twisty tunnels in night. In different ways to get in. The tunnels lead to different rooms called chambers. Each chamber has a purpose. And the chambers. Prairie dogs are bur- bur- busiest in the day. That's when they come out to eat. They also that that's also when they take their pups. For runs outside, they say hello. Prairie dogs might touch mouth. The touch is like a kiss. They might even clean each other's fur by picking out ticks. Careful, a coyote, fox, or hog might hunt for prairie dogs. When there's only one thing to do, disappear. Prairie dogs can run fast even though they have short legs. When prairie dogs sense trouble, they bark a sharp warning to 
other in the, others in the community. They also bob up and down. When the others cry out, they all dart into the burrow. Prairie dogs have different warnings for different enemies. If a cry call, if in a cry called the jump yip, the prairie dog stands on its rear feet and yips loudly. The yip might tell others that danger has passed. You can see why being part of the part of a community is is the safest life for prairie dogs. This is my co- podcast, Prairie Dogs Towns. As you might guess from their names, prairie dogs live in the prairie. A prairie dog is a type of grassland. A prairie is a type of grassland. But prairie dogs are not dogs. These cute little animals are rodents. Rodents are small animals with big front teeth for chewing. Black-tailed prairie dogs live in the prairie in the Great Plains. This is a flat, dry part of the western United States. The Great Plains have plenty of sweet, juicy grass with which prairie dogs eat. The animal tunnel into the soil to build their underground homes. These homes keep them safe from animals and bad weather. Long ago, the Long ago, the Great Plains were full of the prairie, full of prairie dogs. But when people moved into the plains, they used land for farming and raising animals. Today, there's less open land for the for the dog dog towns, prairie dog towns. So there are far fewer prairie dogs living in the prairie. Prairie dogs live in a large fa- in a large family groups. A group includes mom, dad, brother, and sister, and other relatives. Lo- large community of prairie dogs are called town. Prairie dogs are called towns. It is a it is a town of prairie dogs underground home. It's called a burrow. It has twisty tunnels and different ways to get in. The tunnel the tunnel the tunnels lead to different rooms called chambers. Each chamber has a purpose. Prairie dogs are the busiest in the daytime when that's when they come out to eat. When prairie when they eat they also they also take their pups out they also take their pups for runs outside. To say hello prairie dogs, they might touch mouths. The touch is like a kiss. They might even clean each they might even they might even clean each other's fur by picking out ticks. Careful, coyote, fox, coyote, fox, fox, and hawk might hunt for prairie prairie dogs. They 
then there's only one thing to do, disappear. Prairie dogs can run as fast even though they have short legs. When prairie dogs, when prairie dogs sense trouble, they bark to, they bark a sharp warning in, to other in the community. They also bob up and down. Then they, then others cry out. They all dart into the burrows. Prairie dogs have different warnings for different enemies. In a cry called the jump yip, the prairie dogs stand on the re- on its rear feet on its rear feet and yip loudly. The yip might tell others that danger has passed. You can see why being a part of a community is the safest life for prairie dogs.